Today's reading comes from 2 Peter 3, 1 to 18. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, follow, following their own sinful de desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the God, the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, which he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let's pray together. <clears throat> yeah, Heavenly Father, we do recognize even as we make announcements about people who are struggling about things that did not go according to our plans, we do recognize, perhaps more acutely this morning, that we are not yet perfected, that we are not yet in glory, that things are not the way they should be. Lord, would you help us? We ask that you would help us this morning. For those of us who have not considered your return, 
Lord, would you remind us, would you stir us up to action as we consider your return? For those of us who have never considered your return, uh, would it make sense to us? Would your glory be seen? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I, I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. This Sunday, as he told us, is our last Sunday in Advent. Our last Sunday in this Advent season. And Heath and I have labored to show you how Jesus, Son of God, as prophet, priest, and king, changes everything. Indeed, all of history, we've said, turns on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, as we'll see this morning, his soon return. This is what we celebrate at Advent. Our claim these past few weeks has been nothing less than everything changes when King Jesus comes. Three weeks ago I said exactly that, and then you walked out the doors, and everything hadn't changed. It was all the same. Everything looked, smelt, and felt very much like it did before. Maybe you had a bit more hope. Maybe we're still riding the high of, of, of the music, but by three in the afternoon, or maybe by four, things felt much like they always have. What's the deal? I'll be the first to confess this morning that our look at King Jesus three weeks ago was incomplete. Our look at King Jesus three weeks ago was missing something. And, and that something, what it was missing, is what we're talking about today. See, we've looked at how Jesus fulfills the anointed Old Testament offices of a king, then a prophet, then a priest. But this week we're coming back to the king and to the end of the story. Three weeks ago we looked at the first advent or the first coming of King Jesus. This morning we'll spend our time looking at the second advent, the second coming of King Jesus. And what I want to do as we begin is suggest that we're all looking, all of us, We're looking to live into stories, be a part of stories, with satisfactory endings. We want our presents with a bow on them. Nice and tidy and neat. Even Isis, even Isis wants a nice ending to their story. In the March 2015 issue of the Atlantic magazine, there was this article that was widely read. That was called this. It was was entitled this. What Isis really wants. And the subtitle, it's on the screen behind me. The Islamic State is no mere collection of psychopaths. It is a religious group with carefully considered beliefs, among them that it is a key agent of the coming apocalypse. Here's what that means for its strategy and, how, and for how to stop it. In short, the article continues to say... ISIS does what it does because the story it believes ends with them ushering in a physical Muslim nation, a a caliphate. ISIS today is informed by how they believe the story ends. Now, it's not just ISIS. We in the West also live according to a story, a story with an ending, except the Western story ends... With us having advanced so far materially and and technologically as we established, not a kingdom in Allah's name, but a kingdom in our name. 
A few months ago, I remember sitting across from a guy working in the tech industry, not a follower of Jesus. And I remember him saying to me, yeah, things are going this way. My hope is that things continue this way. That's the eschatological end-time vision of, of Silicon Valley. Living in view of this ending, then, as the West, we sacrifice our lives, our, family, our family's lives, on the altar of progress and advancement. Our gods, they don't speak from mountains. They speak at, at, at TED conferences, right? In short, 15-minute memorable blurbs. The Western script, just like the script that governs the Islamic State, has an ending. An ending which deeply influences how we live now, how you and I live in this moment. We all live according to a script. Which means if we want to follow Jesus today, if we want to live in Jesus' story, we need to recognize the way in which we're living into a script that is different than his. An ending that differs from Jesus's. We need to take ourselves out of our own cultural narrative and conform ourselves to the story of Jesus. We need to ask this morning, how does his story end? How does his story end? Our task today is really simple. I want us to see the end of the story and then ask how we should respond. Three questions to govern our time. Three questions. Really simply, will the king come back? Will the king come back? That's a question we should probably ask. Will the king come back? Second, what will the king do? And thirdly, what should I do now? Will the king come back? What will the king do when he comes back? And then what should I do now? Those are our three questions. So first question, will the king come back? Look at our text this morning. Our text began by showing us two ways, two ways in history as to how that question has been answered. So to the question, will the king come back? Historically speaking, we've answered that two ways. Let me read 2 Peter 3, 1-7 with you. And, and props to Sue. That was a long reading. Good job, Sue. 2 Peter 3, 1-7. I don't know why I said props. I don't know if anyone says that anymore. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come, notice this phrase, in the last days. In the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now before we look at these two historical responses, we need to understand how Peter got here, where Peter is writing from, the context Peter is saying these things in. Again, three weeks ago we traced the story of the king, right? We showed the story of the king in the Bible, and we said, contrary to popular belief, contrary to our gut reaction, the problem isn't with authority. The problem isn't with a king. The problem is with with bad authority. 
with bad kings. Those who wield authority in such a way as they abuse it and, and, and lord it over them. But we see in Philippians 2 that Jesus takes all of his authority as the good king and uses it not to wield over us, but in service of us. And the cross is a shining example of that. The solution then is not anarchy or self-governance. It's found in the good king. He takes his kingly authority and power to the cross. Jesus is this good king. But the story of the good king does not end with his crucifixion. It doesn't even end with his resurrection. It doesn't even end with his ascension to the right hand of the Father. For God's people, it's always been like this. The story of the good king has always ended with his return, with his coming back. It ends with him putting everything where it belongs, heaven and earth, under his reign, found in him. Not, not, not a scrap outside of him. And one of the places we see this most clearly is in the prophecy of Isaiah. In the beginning of Isaiah, we catch glimpses of this coming king, this saving one. We we all know this Christmas text, and if you don't, listen to it. For to us, right, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Notice, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, notice this, there will be no end. Again, 700 years before Jesus, God's people are looking forward to one who will come and bring a government of which there will be no end. We continue. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth, notice again, and forevermore, eternal, forever, kingdom. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As we continue through Isaiah, as the Anglicans would say, or as Isaiah, as we should say, as we continue through Isaiah, what we find is this king, this king is actually a servant. A king who is a servant who indeed will will suffer to usher in his kingdom. A real feel-and-touch material kingdom. Not a Philadelphia cream cheese kind of kingdom, right? Where you're in clouds and there's harp. No, a real feel and touch, material, renewed creation. A new Jerusalem. Look at Isaiah 65, 17 with me. Listen to what the king says he will do. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. As followers of Jesus, we believe that in Jesus' life, death, and, and resurrection, the kingdom of God is at hand. That yes, the cross was a definitive victory in the cosmic battle over death and sin and Satan, and yet we still await the full redemption of all things. This time in between the times. This in-between time of Jesus' victory on the cross and the making new of all things is what Peter means when he says, last days. Last days. We, like Peter, are living in these last days. And here's where the two historical responses come in to this message. 
The first response to the second advent of King Jesus, did you see it? Is scoffing. Scoffing. Peter says that in these last days, there have been and there will continue to be scoffers. Scoffers. Those who do not and will not believe that Jesus is returning to make all things new. And outwardly, they will give sound and tight logical arguments that sound like this. Ready? Well, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, all things are going on. They've still gone on. Nothing has happened. But notice, notice this. Peter sees behind their clever argument. He says in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days of scoffing, then look at this, following their own sinful desires. And then he gives their argument, but following their own sinful desires. In other words, Peter's saying, here's why scoffers scoff. Here's why people laugh. If no king is returning, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I please. If there is no king, Peter says, then we can live with no accountability. And he knows. He knows that's in us. See, some of us this morning have decided that Jesus is not coming back. And you said that in your heart, and you said that out loud. That Jesus is not coming back. And maybe you've established around that belief some clever arguments. Well, I'm a materialist. Right? All that exists is that chair and this pulpit and, and, and this paper. And, and there's really nothing supernatural or divine or, or spiritual happening in this world. And so, you know what? Jesus coming back, not happening. Others of you are like, yeah, there's a divine out there. there there's a deity out there generally. And he started things, but he since left us. And your argument sounds a lot like the argument of the false teachers in Peter's day. Things have gone on as they always have. But if we can move from Peter to something that Paul says elsewhere, these arguments, if Peter and Paul are to be believed, are are us actively suppressing the truth. Paul says we know the truth, but in our unrighteousness, we actively suppress the truth of, of, of the whole gospel, of Jesus, his coming, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. Paul says it, and Peter's alluding to it here, that we are actively doing that in our unrighteousness. As we sit outside of Christ. See, the real reason why we scoff and why people scoff is because it is easier to scoff at the return of Jesus than live as if he's coming back. There's something inside of you and there's something inside of me that likes to hear no one is coming back. Live how you please. Why do anything? Live how you please. One response in history, and this has really been throughout history, has been to scoff. We see it today. We saw it in Peter's day. We'll see it going forward. The other response in history has been to consider history itself. Peter's opponents, they cited history in their remarks, right? It's always been the same since Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Since they died, it's just been the same. But now, he asked them to take another look. 
he asks them to reconsider the historical record. Look, look at 2 Peter 3, 5-7 to with me. Notice. For they deliberately, again that active suppression, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. In verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Two commentators, uh, they helpfully summarize what Peter is getting at here. It can be summarized like this. Peter's three biblical examples will show that God stepped in once to create the world, stepped in a second time to flood it, and that nothing stops him from stepping in a third time to judge it. Stepped in once to create the world. God stepped in again to, to, to judge it and to flood it. And he steps in a third time again to judge it. Peter's argument is essentially this. God has his hand on the beginning. He's had his hand on the middle. And he will have his hand on the end. He's over all of it. And our two historical responses can be boiled down to this. Jesus is coming back. You're an idiot. God doesn't care about us. Or, two, Jesus is coming back. And it is just like him to make things right. He's always done this. He's always acted in history. And I think one of the things that separates those two responses to the same news of a returning king One of those things has everything to do with what you believe this king to be like. See, Peter's eager to tell us about this king. Look at 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, and then verse 15. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now look at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So will King Jesus come back? Yes. Peter says yes. The Bible says yes. When will he come back? Well, in his own timing. Peter himself would have remembered what what Jesus said. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So will he come back? Yes. But when? In his own timing. But why delay? It feels like a delay. It, It should be now. And here's where I want us to linger. Because he is patient. It's worth reading again. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We're going to see in a minute that the return of Jesus includes judgment. Judgment. And once judged, the judgment of God cannot be revoked. God does not flip-flop here. 
a million years into the new heavens and the new earth. He won't say, you know that judgment I made a million years ago? I'm going to take that back. I'm going to do a do-over on that. Can we just run that again? The Lord knows what's at stake better than any of us. And because he knows what's at stake, the eternal destiny, the eternal home of people, he is patient. In other words, because he loves your neighbor more than you do, he is patient. Because his eternal size heart is that every person would know him forever, he is patient. The king waits because the king is lovingly patient. Now some of you might say, if it is true that the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, why can't he just make it so? Well, he's God, isn't he? And here's where we need to move to our second question. What will King Jesus do when he comes back? I want to say two things here. But since we're on the topic of judgment, let's start there. Our text, the rest of the Bible, really clear. The king returns to judge. Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, 7 and then verse 10. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now look at verse 10 with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some other translations say, or or laid bare. Now if you grew up in a more liturgical church, like an Anglican church or or a Catholic church, maybe you're used to, at Advent time, working through themes, the themes of Advent, like peace and love and and joy and hope. Those are the traditional themes of Advent for for our contemporary era, for our modern era. But if you were to grow up in the medieval church, so think like Black Plague and like knights and armor and like castles and stuff, if you were to grow up in the medieval church, which I don't know if any of that I said is true, But if you grow up in that church, in that era, the four themes of Advent, ready for them? Here they are. Death, judgment, heaven, hell. Merry Christmas! You You do hell right before Christmas. Those are the four themes of Advent. Contrast those with the four themes of our contemporary Advent. Now, I'm not arguing, don't mishear me, that we should get rid of peace and joy and love and hope to focus on death and judgment and heaven and hell. Only this. All I'm saying is this. Peace and joy and love and hope make no sense outside of death and judgment and heaven and hell. Peace and joy and love and hope make no sense outside of death and judgment and heaven and hell. Fleming Rutledge, she's a priest in the States. She speaks well when she says this. As we have seen... This comes out of her Advent devotional guide. As we have seen, hope is a central key to the meaning of Advent. But hope is a very meager concept if it is not measured against the malevolence and godlessness of the forces that assail the creation and its creatures every day in this present evil age. In other words, in other words, what good is hope if the Lord is powerless to judge? 
What good is hope if the Lord has no interest in exposing or laying bare the earth and the works that are done on it? We, we want a God that judges. We, we do. We just don't want a God that judges us. We want justice. We just don't want justice directed our way. So to the question, if it's his desire, why doesn't God just save everyone? Part of the answer, and it's not a full answer, but part of the answer is, do you really want a God who ignores injustice? Do you really want a God who looks at rape and spousal abandonment and genocides and shrugs his shoulders? A God who looks at the evil that has been done against you that you feel this morning and goes, well, they just might get away with that one. I try to get them. We don't want that. And yet at the same time, what Jesus has shown us is that we are not allowed to put everyone else in the bad guy camp while we sit here smugly in the good guy camp. No, the first sign of the Spirit, the first sign of following Jesus in your life is that you see yourself for the very first time as one of those bad guys. One of those people rightly under the wrath of God. The good news of Advent, the good news every day for us, is that God's desire that all may be saved is not just divine, wishful thinking. No, the Father's desire is expressed at Advent in the sending of His Son. God's divine desire, which we read about in 2 Peter 3, God's divine desire is paired with His divine action. His divine action. That Jesus, our great high priest, as God, would draw us near to Him. King Jesus comes to judge. If we're honest, we read through these passages and we think to ourselves, must not linger there. Must read quickly there. King Jesus comes to judge. Comes to judge. And all will be laid bare. And after all is laid bare, all is exposed, then the king's work is to make new. Is to make new. Peter says exactly what we heard Isaiah say earlier. 2 Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for what? What are we waiting for, people? New heavens. A new earth in which righteousness dwells. Waiting for King Jesus means waiting for a complete makeover. A complete renewal. It's not a tweak. It's not a renewal of some things. You know, Lord, just fix the oceans. I heard the oceans are important. Just fix those. But after that, we're good. It's a renewal of all things. Not an inch, not a square, not a mile of this planet, not not a mile of our minds and our bodies will not be touched by the coming of Jesus who comes to make all things new. I have no better news than that. I give you no more hope than that. So new that Peter can say that this will be a place in which righteousness dwells. Did you see that? Or if you have another translation, it might say this. This place, this new heavens and new earth, will be the home of righteousness.
I think one of the things we think about when we think about the new heavens and the new earth, one of the things we think about is that they will be awkward, that they will be a strange new place. And we'll have to kind of figure it out, and, and it's new, and we think differently, and we feel differently. Like, like the new heavens and the new earth will, will feel like a, a poorly tailored suit. Like it will take some time to get used to. But what we're told here in 2 Peter 3 is that that couldn't be further from the truth. We were made to be home in a renewed creation. We were made to hear the voice of God. We were made near to draw near to Him. We were made to draw near to Him. We were made to be home in a land of righteousness. The King returns to bring us home. But until that day, until that day, while we patiently wait for the loving King to renew our home, what should we do? What should you do as you leave this place? Look at verse 11 and then verse 14 to 18 with me. Look at this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now skip down to verse 14 with me. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, these is is the new, new heavens and new earth. Since you are waiting for these, in view of waiting for the new creation, the new Jerusalem, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Peter's saying, I'm not writing to you something new. Paul says the same thing that, that, that I do. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. In verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I want to end this morning by looking at two things in what we just read. One's an exhortation, an exhortation, an encouragement, a, a word to get your move on, if you will, and the other's an invitation. One's an exhortation, one's an invitation. First, the exhortation, the get your move on word. Christ City Church, East Vancouver. If you truly believe that King Jesus is coming back and everything, and this is not hyperbole, everything, capital E, everything, will be exposed, start, continue, persist in living godly and holy lives now. Start, continue, persist in living godly and holy lives now. Peter's language throughout this letter in 2 Peter, you can look at it after the gathering. Peter's language in 2 Peter is consistent. In verse 1, sorry, in chapter 1, 5 to 7, he exhorts his listeners to make every effort in our pursuit of certain virtues. Later in 2 Peter 1, Peter uses that same verb in the original language, again saying, be all the more diligent, same word, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And now in our passage that we just read, he picks up on that language again when he says, be diligent. Again, be diligent. Be diligent. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
let's speak very clear here. The righteousness that Christ gives us is the foundation for all other righteousness. It starts as we, by faith, trust in the finished work of Jesus, a work that we could not do. But from there, what Peter is emphasizing in our text is that righteousness needs to be seen in outward godliness if we are to enter Jesus' kingdom. And that is uncomfortable for us. Peter says that knowing where we stand in history, this time between the advents, ought to lead to this type of holy living today. Now if you can for a second, I'm an imaginative, visual person. Try to envision this with me. Try try to think for a moment just exactly how life-changing it is to live right now in view of our belief that Jesus is coming back. Think about what a paradigm shift that is. What will truly matter when Jesus returns? What sort of life will he be pleased with when he comes? What will you say to him when he comes? There have been a few times in my own life when the biggest factor as Maisie and I, my wife and I, look to step out in faith or or kill certain sin in our life, the biggest factor in pushing us to do that has been considering that Jesus is coming back and that all will be laid bare. Some of us this morning have secret sins that we have kept for years and we have nursed them and we have built walls around them and we have kept them to ourselves and nobody is coming in. And we think those walls are sufficient. We think those walls are are, are tall enough and thick enough and strong enough. And Peter says when King Jesus returns, he will lay all bare. That everything will be exposed. How does that not change our whole life? How does that not change how we think as a church? Why would we ever get caught up in in the color of the carpet or or, or the kind of chairs we have when Jesus is coming back? Why would we let sin grow between us and, and bitterness grow between a brother and sister in Christ if Jesus is coming back? Why would we remain in unbelief if King Jesus is coming back? How does the return of Jesus not change how you treat your spouse? How does that not change the way you work? How does that not change what you do with your money? How does the return of Jesus not change everything for us? This first word is a word of exhortation. It is a a grace-filled word to us. Live. Live like Jesus is coming back. Live like you actually believe that. Because if we don't actually believe that, we do not have a better story and we have no good news. Show your belief in action. It is those who have pursued righteousness, purity, and blamelessness who, at the end of the age, Peter says, will be shown to be Jesus's. 
will be shown to belong to him. That's the first word. The second word is one of invitation this morning. Peter said this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're internally scoffing at all of this. And it's worth remembering that every single person in this room at one point in their lives was scoffing at all of this. All of this. Have you ever considered that the Lord's delay is not a strike against him, not a mark in in the error column, but a sign of his loving patience towards you? His loving grace, his loving mercy, his desire that you would be saved. That while King Jesus might be bodily absent this morning, I haven't seen him, maybe you have, While King Jesus might be bodily absent this morning, he is, however, present by his Holy Spirit, and he is offering you a chance to turn from your sin and believe in him. How do you think this story ends? This is not a faraway question that deserves consideration at a faraway time. It's a question that begs answering today because it changes everything about how you live today. The invitation this morning is to come to him. It's to come to him. Come to him. To come to him. To live right now in view of the greatest story with the greatest ending ever told. That the good king is coming. He's coming. He's coming. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.